something called Take Your Rightful Place, starting last week, and we'll be on it for a while, I think. Um, oh, no, that is negative psychology. That is the wrong posture. Keep your eyes open. That is not to encourage you. That is to discourage you. Yeah. That is what happened when I tried preaching to him. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, Brandon, I don't know why you put such pictures up, man. Take it down. Okay. Yeah, so we've been doing this uh, series called Take Your Rightful Place. Um, and so today we do the second part of it. And we'll be here for a while, I think. And. Um, so today we talk about a Gideon from Judges chapter 6, verse 1 to 24. And so if you want to turn to Judges 6, I'll read it. Hey, these little boxes here are not tissue boxes. You don't take things out of them. These are offering boxes. You put things into them, eh? Just so, you know. Pardon? <laughs> yeah. Don't go blow your nose on a $50 bill, yeah? Uh, that's the offering box. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished uh, ravaged. Midian was so impoverished that the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I dro drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abiezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not, Lord, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in, favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. 
please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on the rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace or shalom, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it Yahweh Shalom, or the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Oprah of the Abizarites. So when you look at the background and the life of Gideon, uh, life was being plundered. They were impoverished. He was in dire poverty. Uh, They were living in caves. The enemy was swarming them like locusts from a field. They were, they, were, they were in their situation because of sin and because of idolatry. They were weary of any sign of hope because every time there was a sign of hope, it would be cruelly crushed when these enemy armies would come in. And they would, I mean, there's nothing as bleak as hope destroying as when something is going to bud and someone comes and takes it. Always be aware of that, eh? Now, one of the tricks Satan uses very effectively in the lives of believers is come and destroy something just when you think there's a glimmer of hope. That's when he tries to, if if he can destroy hope, then there is no question of exerting faith. There is no question of joy. And if faith and joy are banished from your life, then there's only a going down the spiral. There's not a coming up. That's the intent. He cannot stop things from bearing fruit when the seed is God, but he does try to destroy the early bud so that you don't have the strength to wait for the fruit. Hear me again. He knows that he cannot destroy God's seed. He tried it with Moses. He tried it with Jesus. Did not happen. But he has the um, he has this ploy because the Bible says. Be aware of the devices of the devil because they are the same. He has this ploy to go after the early bud so that as it begins to blossom, if he can chop it off, it makes you feel like there is no hope. And once hope goes and once joy goes, a man cannot get out of the pit he is in. Because once expectation is removed and once joy is removed, a Christian does not have strength anymore because faith is built on expectation and joy is the reason you're strong. The joy of the Lord, as in my, my, my expectation of God brings me joy. And if that is removed, there's nothing left. And that's what has been happening here. This is exactly what happened to Job too, guys. One after the other. It wasn't one blow. It wasn't a second blow. It was a blow after blow after blow till this man realizes that it doesn't matter how much I pray, how many sacrifices I offer, There was no expectation. That is when he sinks into his lowest. eh? And that's what's happening here. Swarms like locusts coming and invading the land. And just when the harvest is ready, they come and take away the harvest. 
And so Gideon now finds himself threshing wheat in a well where usually they used to uh, uh, tread upon grapes to get wine out of it. He's threshing wheat there. And he's unaware that the one who is speaking to him is actually Yahweh. It's not that Gideon is unaware of the history of Israel because he goes and quotes what the forefathers have said. So this man is not unaware of the history of Israel, but in his dire circumstances, he's not able to recognize Yahweh. One of the best things to do when circumstances get really dire is to somehow find a place where peace, hope, and joy begin to glimmer again. If that doesn't glimmer, there is no traction for what God does. There's no traction even in terms of recognizing that He is present. As soon as hope goes, what, does, what, what is it that replaces hope? Resentment. When hope goes, resentment replaces it. It's not hopelessness that re- replaces hope. Hope is always replaced by resentment. And so, before resentment can bear its fruit, one has to learn. You have to learn, I have to learn. Because we're all in the same boat in this, eh? It happens to all of us. It's just that we have varying degrees of dealing with it now. That's all. Some of us have coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms. Some of us have spiritual mechanisms to deal with it. And so, what happens then is... um, Yeah, so Gideon is threshing wheat in a well, unaware that the one who appears to him is Yahweh. Uh, Why isn't he recognizing that God has appeared? He knows that the angel of the Lord is always the one who is, in in our understanding now, the pre-incarnate Christ. But he knows that this is God. He knows how Jacob fought the angel of the Lord. But instead, because of his lament, because of his resentment, He does not recognize that God is in the place. He laments and he resents. And what's he lamenting and resenting about? His lack, his insignificance, the hollowness and the delay of God's promises. That is so like us, eh? When we see our lack, when we see the insignificance that we operate in, and then worse, when we think that God's promises are hollow or God's promises are delayed, it's the same lament and resentment that comes up, eh? Once it begins to come up, it's so hard to see God. And yet here is God saying, take your rightful place. And he wants to use the story of Gideon to show us how to take our rightful place. And by the way, you're in great company, like great lousy company. Um, Moses, same thing. Guy was in the backside of the Sinai, lamenting that He was just a shepherd. He had run away from Egypt and so on. Uh, You take uh, Saul, King Saul. When it came to uh, be chosen as king, he was hiding in the cargo hold, not wanting to come out. Take Gideon. Take Jonah. That guy was a poster boy for resentment. Take Mephibosheth, Saul's son. God God was saying to all these characters I mentioned, come take your rightful rightful place, Mephibosheth. David had him seated at his table. Moses, he says, hey, you're a deliverer for Israel. Jonah, he says, you can go and prophesy and save a city. Saul, he says, you're going to be the first king of Israel. And all these men were not able to take their rightful place. 
either because of a lack of confidence or because of weakness or because of a past experience. Here are some of the reasons we don't take our rightful place. Lack of confidence. Where I would suggest to you that Saul knew that um, they were picking tribes, clans, families, and then the individual by lot to make the king of Israel. So he knew, as soon as they said, the family of Kish, he knew that it could likely be him. What does he do? The first thing he does when he knows that he might be picked, and when he thinks of the weight of responsibility, he runs and hides in the cargo hold. He runs and hides himself in the baggage. There are different reasons why we don't take our rightful place. Here are some of them. Lack of confidence. Weakness, as in, is it? Uh, weakness, I'm not even talking about sin. I'm talking about weakness as in some kind of a complex that we all have. All of us in some area of our life feel inferior. Like when I stand here, I bet you feel bad about your looks. So each of us has these struggles, eh? That didn't fly at all. Alrighty, moving on. <laughs> okay. Uh, so weakness, past experience, past experience, Fear, resentment, a lack of acceptance, and the guilt of sin. Any of these, guilt of unresolved sin, any of these can cause you to hesitate from taking your rightful place. And then let's throw in another one. Habits. These are not sinful habits. These are just, um, just human habits that are so not conducive to stepping into your rightful place. Yep. No, lack of being accepted by people. Yeah. Because... Um, Sometimes there can be a sense of uh, uh, people don't like me, and sometimes it's real, sometimes it's imagined. It can be both. Sometimes it's a mixture of both. Yeah? So these are the reasons we fail to take our rightful place. Saul hid in the luggage hold. Moses hid behind his speech impediment, remember? He begins to say, but oh God, I can't speak, and so they had to send Aaron. We always hide behind something when it comes to taking our rightful place. So uh, Saul hides in the luggage hole, Moses hides behind his speech impediment, Gideon hid in uh, the uh, wine press in fear, Jonah hid behind his resentment, Mephibosheth hid because he was scared that David would kill him because Saul was his enemy. We have different reasons for hiding. It prevents us from taking our rightful place. Any questions? Any questions? Okay. So how do we go about then, with all these things that plague our lives, how do we still go about um, getting to that rightful place that God wants us to be at? So the process is three-faced. Process is three-faced. First one is um, 
Know your rightful place. Know your rightful place. As in, have you seen what God is calling you to? Have you seen what God is calling you to? Know your rightful place. We'll explain each one after I put them down. To train for your rightful place. Train for your rightful place. And three, take your rightful place. And all three require faith. All three require faith. And it's not easy, it's very difficult because everything in the world will prevent you from taking your rightful place. Because if you took your rightful place, it would benefit or it would deliver or it would build or it would tear down a whole lot of things on earth. Because most extraordinary things on earth are done by very, very ordinary people. At least in the kingdom. That's how it works. Know your rightful place, as in, do you uh, have an idea of what God is beckoning you towards? You may not have a clear idea, but do you have a murky idea, a blurred idea? Begin there. And each of these requires faith, and if you were to talk about the anatomy of faith, faith requires that I see, then faith requires that I believe, then faith requires that I speak or confess what I believe, and then faith requires that I do, because faith is an action. That's the anatomy of faith. Whatever I see, as in, whatever God is saying, can I see it? Can I see what God is saying? Can I see what God is trying to show? That becomes the horizon that I begin to walk towards. Can I see it? After I see it, can I begin to believe it? Is it a deep conviction that cannot be shaken? Where it doesn't matter that my uh, 32,000 men have now been brought down to 300 against an army that is innumerable to count. Can I still have the, carry that deep conviction of what I've seen? Can I then begin to speak it? Because um, in Proverbs and in other places, in Mark chapter 11, Proverbs um, 18, it talks about the mouth speaks um, what the heart uh, carries. The mouth speaks what the heart carries. Can, my f- can what I believe now be put into words? And then finally, faith does something about what it believes. Faith does something about what it believes. That is the anatomy of faith. And so in all these three things, know your rightful place, train for your rightful place, take your rightful place, faith is required. David and Paul knew. David knew what he was being called to. The moment Samuel poured a flask of oil on him, he knew what he was being called to. Paul was the same. Once he falls off the horse and the blinding light hits him and Ananias comes and begins to speak over his life, he knows what he's called to. And as soon as he knows, because of what, he, what both David and Paul see, and I'm taking two guys from the New Testament and the Old Testament, as soon as they know, they begin to actually believe it. They have, there's a deep conviction in their hearts that this is what I'm called to. Till that deep conviction comes, You cannot train for the rightful place because the training will be difficult. And the training is not some kind of a course or some kind of a Bible study. The training is real life. 
How do you maintain a straight track when life comes against you? This is why wild horses will never make it in the kingdom. Wild horses are people that love the Lord. They love serving the Lord. Think they are not wild horses, but are absolutely wild. They are fun to ride till you get thrown off. But we'll talk about wild horses another day. Yeah. So till the deep conviction comes, I can't even train for my rightful place. Do you think David would have survived running around in the wilderness like a refugee, chased by Saul, acting mad at times, having people that he was fighting with stone him? Do you think he would have survived that had he not come to this deep conviction inside him that I, I am supposed to be king? And yet knowing that, he refuses to kill Saul when he has him at his mercy. Because he knows that the way this happens will have to be a God thing. I cannot take this into my own hands. And he waits. To take my rightful place, for the church to take its rightful place, for you to take your rightful place, for me to take the rightful place, one of the hardest things is to actually believe what you see. Very difficult. Because what God is showing you about yourself is so different from how you think about yourself. It is so different. If you went and told somebody, they would laugh thinking, hmm. Hold on to those things that you are so sure God has spoken, eh? You may only be able to tell one or two people in the world, but one day the world will see. Remember, David did this. He goes and tries to tell his brothers that I'm the one who can take out Goliath. The brothers get quite angry. They say, go back and take care of sheep. You need faith to accept, see, and think what God is saying. David and Paul knew this. The recognition, as soon as they knew it, as soon as the conviction came, training began, where both of them were trained on the job, on the job. It's, they were trained on the job in the wilderness. Paul spends time in uh, Saudi Arabia for 14 years. Um, David spends time in the wilderness of uh, Tekoa and other places in Israel learning the ropes. But the day is coming when a man called Paul revolutionizes the world and a man called David is called the... Um, <laughs> his name is used to describe Jesus. Jesus, son of David. How nuts is that? Any questions? Any questions, guys? Do you think coffee is good for plants? No? Okay. How do we develop a deep conviction? A conviction only develops when you are fully persuaded about something as being the truth. A conviction only develops when you're fully persuaded about something being the truth. Uh, this is why you even have people who believe falsehoods to be true and can stand on it. That the earth is flat, that white rock is Surrey. <laughs> Stuff like that. So, in the, in the US courts, uh, a conviction is something you're willing to go to jail for. 
They differentiate belief from conviction. Belief is something that may change. I believe this today, I can believe something else tomorrow. A conviction is something that you stand on so firmly that you're willing to go to prison for it. And that is the nature of the word conviction. Until I'm fully persuaded that it is the truth, I will not stand on it. So the Hebrews chapter 11 is full of people who were fully persuaded that what they heard was the truth. Some of them got what they were standing for in their lifetime, others didn't, but they were fully persuaded and they're mentioned in that list. You and I are fully convinced or persuaded that Christ is Lord, that he is Savior. Even though the thought of you being persecuted may frighten you, I would say almost everybody in this room would be able to say, I will not turn my back on Christ. And have you seen him? No. Have you spoken to him face to face? No. Yeah, we'll be talking exactly about that. Yeah. One of the things you need when it comes to training uh, to take your rightful place, you need the faith to molt out of the old skin. How do you molt out of it? How do you molt out of the lack of confidence? How do you molt out of fear? How do you molt out of inadequacy? How do you molt out of um, weakness, past experience, rejection, resentment, wild horsedness. That's not a word, but I'm using it. How do you molt out of it? How do, you, how do you say, oh God, I know what you've called me for, but this means that I will have to begin to have bitten bridle put in my mouth? I don't like it. I want to run wild. I, I want to save people for the Lord, but don't tell me to, to straighten out and discipline my life. No. There's a proverb in, nine, I think it's Proverbs 19.1, I'm not too sure. It says that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. I'm always afraid of people that have great passion, great zeal, but limited knowledge. Because they are so passionate about God, but they're scary. Because zeal without knowledge is actually dangerous. It's like a, 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 a missile without a guidance system. So how do you molt out of old? I mean, you need faith to train and molt out of old skin. Old skin like the lack of confidence, weakness, past experience, rejection, fear, resentment. So you need faith for that. What do you mean? How, how can you get rid of that by faith? Hey, let's assume that uh, the first time I spoke in a church, my accent was so heavy and so bad that people started laughing. Let's assume that. Didn't happen, but let's assume it happened. And then I'm scared every time I speak to an audience that is not Indian, I get scared. That's not East Indian, let's assume I get scared. What do I do now? 
I have to have the ability to be inadequate and depend on a God who can take words that I don't pronounce well and use it powerfully by the Spirit to affect hearts. That requires faith. Faith can be used to overcome these things. In training, you need faith. When, when David was surrounded by his enemies, there's this beautiful line. It says, David went down to his stronghold and encouraged himself. How in the world do you do that? How do you go down to your stronghold as in whatever place was safe for him? He would go down to his stronghold and he'd begin to encourage himself in the Lord. That's how these Psalms come. Oh Lord, I'm feeling really lousy. I'm feeling like when the Canucks didn't make the playoffs. It really sucks, oh God. And then you keep writing, and then you begin to say, but Quinn Hughes is playing well, and Miller is scoring, and Besser is on top of the game. And then it begins to build up again. Encourage yourself. Poor Golden Knights, eh? They're about six points behind the Canucks now. The next thing is you need faith. You need faith to fill. You need faith to fill the place that you have been appointed to. To fill the place you've been appointed to. Do you think Don needs faith and um, May needs faith and Jillian needs faith to fill the places they are appointed to? Do you think so? I, I assure you they do. They'll have to trust God that, gosh, I hope we are able to pull this off. Because at present, who knows what their preaching is really like. Maybe it really sucks. I hope this is encouraging, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, you need faith to fill the place you've been appointed to. And why do you need faith to fill the place you're appointed to? Because there will be Satanic oppression, satanic opposition, satanic opposition. There will be human resistance. There will be delay in the things you're expecting. There will be the thing called time, which you can't control. There will be lack of fruit. There will be a lack of applause, recognition, and there will be failure, pure and simple failure. There will be. In the face of this, you need faith. <laughs> what when you've done something and it failed miserably? And it's your fault, you messed up. What when people um, resist you? and resist what you're doing? What if they assign to you motives that are false, but uh, it sticks? What, is, what if they say you don't care when you have done everything in your power to care? What about satanic opposition? You think anything built in the kingdom is not opposed by the devil himself? This is why it's impossible to take your rightful place unless you have this magnificent element called faith.
Any questions? So one of the things that I think would be wise for you to do, especially because it's still January, is to go home and just start with the first one. Take your rightful place. So God, can you at least, can I at least begin to explore with you the rightful place I must occupy by the end of this year? That's all. Just an invitation. What is the rightful place? God saying, hey, when you were born, before you were born, Jill, before you were born, Davan, before you were born, Mike, uh, any of the mics, um, before you were born, um, this is where I expected you to be at the end of 2024. I'm inviting you into it. It doesn't matter that you may have squandered time in the past. I can make up the years that you have lost. That's not a big deal for me. But this is what I'm inviting in, you into. Dilna, can you begin to see it? Can you begin to see it? And if you can see it, can I invite you to take your rightful place? I'll help you. And I'll help you, and I'll help you. Helping is my favorite thing to do. In fact, I even named my spirit the helper. I'll help you. But can you see it? Because if you can't see it, deep conviction will not arise. And if deep conviction does not arise, the storms of life will direct your course. Why is it important to speak it? Because our tongue is a rudder. Tiny little thing that directs the ship. Our tongue is a rudder. I mean, you think I'm going to quit talking about Hebrides 2.0 and that there's a revival that will come across the earth amongst the young people and that it will happen through this church. You think I'm ever going to stop speaking about it? I'm so convicted about it that I know I will see it. Any questions? Any questions? Okay, that's three questions. You're only allowed one. <laughs> okay, so here are the questions. One, how do you steward the gift of faith? Two, uh, how do you practice faith? Because when we're in a sense of conflict, we cannot just switch on and say... Okay, and the third question? Okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, when we think of the gift of faith... Uh, the gift of faith is a supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit to a person um, for the benefit of the body so that this person now has from the Spirit of God this ability to exert um, faith for absolutely impossible things with relative ease and then rest knowing that they don't have to pray, they don't have to do anything. It still has to be exerted, but there's an ease with which they do it. It's the same difference between someone laying hands and praying, anointing with oil and praying and the person gets healed, and a person who has a gift of healing, where it's a supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit, which still has to be exerted, where a person lays hands on someone and certain diseases seem to always get healed by the person. With faith, it's the same way. I mean, it's, it's, it's supernatural faith that causes a man to step out and walk on substance that he has no business walking on, like Peter did on water. It is supernatural faith for a man to have a venomous snake wrapped around his arm 
Everybody is expecting him to fall dead, and he shakes it off uh, like you're shaking of water and continues preaching as if nothing happened. That's extraordinary faith. But it's done with such ease that you cannot take credit for it. It is, it is an ability given by the Spirit. And it's usually for the benefit of the body. Once that happens and they expect him to fall down dead and he doesn't and throws the snake into the fire, the entire island of Malta gets saved because they see this guy who's just done something incredible. And when conflict comes, how do we turn on faith? You cannot turn on faith in conflict. Any faith that you exert is faith that was already learned. You cannot turn on something in a crisis. You cannot turn it on. It's not some kind of cookie that you grab and say, quickly eat the faith cookie before the enemy comes. It's either in your stomach, you can't get it from the shelf. What charismatics often do, and I'm calling ourselves charismatics too, is that we grab the cookie and start eating. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I believe in you, Lord, or I believe in you. That doesn't work. It's just a whole lot of scriptures written on your mirror. It doesn't help. What really helps is what's inside. That is what comes out under pressure. That is why some of you are amazing when it comes to finances. You have strange faith when it comes to finances. You trust God. It doesn't matter that the market is going up or your wife lost um, $50,000. It doesn't matter. You seem to be as calm as a cucumber. I don't know why they think cucumbers are calm. And, <laughs> and then some of you have tremendous faith when it comes to healing. It doesn't matter what happens. You walk through it like, I'll get healed. It's in different areas that you've already developed the ability, eh? So, examine where you are at, in these three phases. So let's go back to Gideon. He's resentful, he's hopeless. He even uses words like, I feel abandoned. In chapter 6, verse 13, he's telling God, uh, he does, he, he, he's yet to recognize him as God, but he knows he's a divine visitor. And he says, you've abandoned us. It's, it's, Gideon's almost talking like us, eh? We, we use the same words. And look at how God reacts. God simply ignores what Gideon is saying, and he continues where he left off. God ignores, God ignores what Gideon is saying. And this continues on. Hint, hint. You can lament and complain all you want and think you'll get a response. He'll ignore it, eh? Because he's got bigger fish to fry, and you're the fish. He'll ignore it. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. It says there, <laughs> so uh, he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, and then he goes through, and then in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. It's almost like he didn't pay any attention to all that Gideon said. Gideon said, you have abandoned us. You've let us down. Look at how impoverished I am. I'm the least of the clan. And God says, go in the strength. What strength? But the point is that God can ignore all my laments because he knows how he created me, why he created me, what's in me. He just knows. And because he knows, he's not going to waste his time on your lament because he knows. 
You think he doesn't know? It's like you with your children. You've got a tiny little owie somewhere here that doesn't hurt. And crocodile tears are coming up. You think you pay any attention? He knows, man. God simply ignores what he's saying. Every time God talks to you, it will be in the context of how he sees you. Every time God talks to me, every time God talks to me, or you, every time God talks to you, it will be in the context of how he sees you. It will be in the context of how he sees you. Try remembering that. Because if you keep repeating, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, he'll, he'll, you'll actually hear a, a streak of annoyance in his voice where he'll say, all right, Moses, I've told you I made your mouth, but if you don't believe me, great, I'll get to Aaron. And he gets Aaron. Aaron then later goes, builds a golden calf. A whole lot of things ensue because one man decided that he would keep complaining even though God is giving him proof after proof after proof that you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. Hey, in some things, you are the guy. You are the guy. Not me, not anybody superior, not someone who's got more education, not someone who's greatly skilled or greatly gifted. You're the guy. And it doesn't matter how much you lament, how much you complain, whatever you say, you're the guy. And he'll completely ignore your lament and say, I'm going after you because I'm the one who made you. I positioned you where you were placed. I've appointed you to boundaries and nations like it says in Acts 17 for a time such as this. You think he cared about Esther saying, I'm scared to go up to the king? Mordecai speaks for God and says, you were raised for a time such as this. If you don't want to, God will raise someone else. You can only say no to him and he'll stop. But complaints... I remember one Westit um, uh, guy who uh, makes all the announcements saying, if you have any complaints, just write it on a $100 bill and give it to us. If you've got any complaints about God, write it on a $100 bill and put it in one of those boxes, eh? Or about the pastor either. Write it on $200 bills because there'll be more. Every time God talks to you, it'll be in the context of how he sees you, not how you see yourself. And so the sooner my thinking aligns with what God is declaring, the sooner I can initiate these three phases in my life. The sooner I do it, the sooner I can initiate it. Any questions? The sooner I can align my thinking and my feeling with what God has declared, shown, spoken, the sooner I can initiate these three phases of see your rightful place, train for your rightful place, take your rightful place. It's an invitation. It's permission. Rightful place is permission. That's what it is. It's permission. What do you know? Gideon, like you and me, and like Jeremiah and like Moses, what does Gideon do? He begins 
to plead his inadequacy for the talk, ta task. He begins to say, but I'm the least of my clan. Moses did that, but I can hardly speak. Jeremiah did that, but I'm just a youth. You read all those three stories, God responds the same way. Come on, man, we've got to recognize how he responds. There are patterns to God. There are patterns to God. Jeremiah, but I'm only a young man. Don't say you're young. Um, Moses, but I um, can hardly speak. Who made your mouth? Sometimes God can sound a little rude. Huh? If someone came to you and said, but I can hardly speak, you would rarely respond saying, who made your mouth? <laughs> That's Gideon. Same thing. You and me, we, we have a tendency to um, plead our inadequacy for the task, but the quicker you realize, guys, this is important, the quicker you realize, the quicker you realize the seriousness of God, the seriousness of God, the quicker you realize the seriousness of God, the quicker you realize the seriousness of God, the sooner you find favor and faith to run the sooner you find favor and faith to run. Hey, God is serious about his invitations. God is serious about it. He doesn't do things with plan B. He's not a God who says, this is plan A, but I better develop a plan B. The reason he doesn't develop a plan B is because he knows everything. When you don't know things, that's when you have plan Bs. So he's dead serious about the rightful place that he's calling you to this year because he thinks it can be done. He also gives you the free will not to do it. But he's really serious about it. Why not see it, guys? Why not hunger for it and see it? It's those that seek, that find, those that ask, that get what they are looking for, those that knock, that get answered, there's, there, there, there must be a drive towards it. And every time the drive dies, go to your favorite friend who is smarter than you and ask them to revive you. Or go to the word which is rich and ask it to revive you. Or cry out to the spirit saying, I'm cold, I'm lukewarm, help me. Any questions? Remember this. Sorry, a question? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his job is the timing of it. Your job is to press in every day. Uh, it, it applies to all of us. I, I'm not, when I say, I'm, I'm not honing in on you. Mark, the truth is, there's nobody in this room who hasn't gone through the through the uh, pain of delay, through the pain of things postponed, to, to the pain of where is this promise, O oh God? To the pain of um, Jeremiah's words, O oh God, you're like a deceptive brook. And even though that kind of uh, angst and uh, resentment and complaint and hopelessness rises, his job is to make sure things happen on time. Your job is to make sure that you press in every day. God's response to Jeremiah when he says, you're a deceptive brook, is to say to Jeremiah, listen, Jeremiah, if you do not separate the vile 
from that which is um, uh, clean. If you don't stop suspecting my nature, I will stop using you as my mouth. I'm going to send you to them. You will be like a fortified wall of bronze. They will not be able to overcome you. You will overcome them. So now go, be my mouthpiece. And so Jeremiah gets up again and he starts again. Have two or three days max of um, wallowing in self-pity. After three days, the smell should make you throw up and then get back to, I've got to go and get things started again. There's no, uh, we don't know. I, I don't even want to guess why God delays things. I don't want to take the blame on myself. Oh, it's because of my sin. Oh, it's because I didn't pray. Oh, it's because, what if it's not? What if it is just kindness to someone? Good question. Two ways. When you know that other people have to come alongside you for something to happen and they are not, sometimes have the audacity to go and say to them, please come alongside me, otherwise I won't be able to do this. And then other times, it will be, even though there is nobody that walks with me right now, I'm going to take a step at a time and see what happens. It's one or the other. Sometimes it is, um, Mark, if you don't come, I can't do this. I'm asking you. Oh, Mark, uh, you're in charge of this. Please use me. It's coming and asking. It's humbling sometimes. So that's one way. The other way is, um, all right, nobody's helping me, but I'm going to take a step. It might be a tiny step, but I am blooming going to take a step. And Maybe you take a step and then you have to wait for three days before you have the courage to take the next step. But my God, man, you're noted in heaven. Listen to this. Say, my strength lies. Please, this, if, if we can sometimes get this, it might change our approach. My strength, my strength lies. My strength lies in what, my strength lies in what I am being chosen for by God. My strength lies in what I'm being chosen for by God. If God chooses a man to carry the gates of Hebron up a hill, then his strength lies in, 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 in stepping into what God has chosen. This is why it's so important to sometimes find it. This is why it's so important for a church to sometimes say, this is where our strength lies. And then step into it. And it changes from year to year. Man, if you're retired, please don't count yourself out. That's a terrible thing to do. To put life on pause when you turn 65? Don't do that. And your job is not, please hear this again, and, and, and I might get into trouble for this. Your job is not taking care of your grandchildren. It is part of what you do. It is not all of what you do. There's been this move in the church 
from family-oriented ministries that say, once you cross 65, your job is to be a wonderful grandmother and grandfather to your grandchildren. They are terrors. Let their parents deal with them. Uh, you know, the first part didn't get me into trouble. It's this part that got me into trouble. <laughs> so, so, there's so much more to your life that was meant to last for another 20 or 25 years that you're supposed to do. My strength lies in what I'm being chosen for by God and that is when you will, you will have a, a great you will assign great importance to I will be with you. The promise that God gives people in the Bible, I will be with you. I will be with you sounds like a uh, big deal. That's like saying good morning. Obviously God will be with you. No, the, the, the weight of I will be with you takes on a strange strength when he sends you out to do something that you know you are chosen for. If you check the Bible, he usually says I will be with you after giving them an assignment. So he says to the twelve, and now go, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've done. And lo, I will be with you. Every time he says, I will be with you, it carries in it. Listen, I know the task I've given you. Don, I will be with you. I'm not, this is not Jacob saying it. Don't expect me to be with you. <laughs> God saying, Don, I will be with you. Kezia, I will be with you. Saying to Jillian, I will be with you. Saying to May, I will be with you. God saying it, because I know the assignment I've given you. It ain't no easy thing. Even, even though Gideon knows it's God, and here's where we come to Anne's um, uh, kind of question. Even though Gideon knows it's God, he needs a sign. This is a habitual issue with Gideon. Huh? It's a habitual issue with Gideon. He, at some point during the conversation, he recognizes it's God, and God's given him a promise, but he needs a sign. Gideon needs a sign, like us. He needs a sign. You see that in 617, then you see it in 637, then you see it in 639, then you see it in 710. The man, he needs a sign. Give me a sign if it's really you. Give me a sign if it's really you. He keeps repeating this quite often. And God obliges. Strangely, he brings this disproportionate sacrifice before God. He brings a whole goat and an ephah. An ephah could feed um, multiple families and he brings it places before God. And what does God do? He waits while he prepares it. God actually rests on the tree in Oprah, waiting for this guy to bring the sacrifice. He brings the sacrifice, he has a staff in his hand, and the angel of the Lord touches the staff and it's consumed by fire. But look at what really affects um, Gideon. What Gideon doesn't know is he's always looking for a sign, but it's always the words of God that affect him. Hey, you know what God says to him? Listen, I want to say to you that I'm Yahweh Shalom, and you will not die. Two things that affect Gideon for the rest of his life. One, that God is peace and he will give me peace. And two, I have seen him and my life is preserved and it will be preserved forward. That is what gives this ordinary guy the guts to do what he does. And look at what he does. His dad has an altar to Baal. His dad is Joash. 
Joash is a pagan cult leader, basically. He has an altar to Baal and a few Asherah poles. Asherahs were the feminine side of Baal. And now Gideon has to go build another altar. <laughs> it's in the same yard. It's in his father's complex. And he builds two altars. And now in Oprah there are two altars. One to Yahweh and one to Baal. And then God makes it even more difficult. Listen, tear down the altar of Baal. He has to go tear down his father's God's altar. Once you take your rightful place, know that there will be some things that come your way. That will be challenging. That will sometimes cause a breach in relationship. But he knows you're capable. So don't shy away from it. It will cause a breach in relationship. It's okay. Because this man, because of the action he takes, he saves his entire family. His father, who's a pagan cult leader, now begins to behave like Elijah. Where the next morning, when he sees the altar torn, and people from the town come and say, hey, we need to kill your son. His words are, hey, can't Baal contend for himself? Why do you need to kill my son? And they name his son Jerubal. Let Baal contend. This guy who was supposed to be the priest of Baal now turns out to be someone who speaks for Yahweh. All because a young boy decided that in his father's complex there will not exist two altars. There will be one altar. If that means he get killed, if that means he be disinherited, so be it. Because when you take your rightful place, people benefit. You don't take your rightful place to fulfill your destiny. We got to, we got to understand that destiny is a real thing. But that destiny is not what we are after. Destiny is a real thing. But it is not what we are after. It is individualism that begins to hunger for destiny. I need to walk in my destiny. Oh, I'm a man destined. You're a man destined to benefit others and to pour out your life for others. That's your destiny. What shape it takes depends on the invitation that is being given to you. Any questions? There's not a person in this church right now it doesn't apply to. This applies to everybody here. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how little you know, how much you know. If you have Christ in you, then this is yours for the taking. If you do not have Christ in you, it's still yours, but you will need Christ before you can take this. Any questions? Sorry, can you say that again, Jill? Yeah, I'm just going down that route. Really, let me get there quickly. Um, the clincher is, uh, guys, uh, before, um, here's how we need to understand it, and then I'll answer those questions. Learn to receive, learn to receive, sift, distill, the words, the voice, and the words of God. The voice and the words of God. This is, you have to learn it, meaning it takes time and practice. But learn to receive, sift, and distill the voice and words of God for the reassurance that your spirit, that your spirit seeks 
is in the woods. So that's the first thing. Second, the sign, the sign or the confirming act calms the soul. Third, the altar or monument becomes a symbol or a reminder that revives your memory of who God is. So that's the way we need to look at it. And the emphasis should be on the first one. So your spirit doesn't really need, my spirit doesn't need a sign. It's our soul that craves for it. And because we at present are always struggling between spirit and soul in this body, God may supply it, but his preference is, hey, can I give you my voice and my words? Both voice in terms of rhema and voice in terms of logos. Can I give you my voice and my words? Because that is what reassures your spirit. And then sometimes I'm willing to give you signs because you're so troubled in your soul that without a sign, you won't be able to step out. And then after I've done both, build a monument, build a memorial, build an altar. The Old Testament was full of it. We should practice the same thing. Why? So that when you see this monument or this symbol, you will remember that God did this then and he will do it again. One addresses the spirit the second addresses the soul. The third actually addresses the mind, reviving your memory. But the emphasis should be on the word and spirit because that's who we are essentially, word, spirit beings. But because we are so human in our approach to God and to the kingdom of God, we, we tend to want a sign to give us that soulish comfort. But the problem with the soul is it's constantly craving. So a confirmation today does not mean that tomorrow's storm will be navigated with yesterday's sign. So we'll need another sign tomorrow. All of us go through this, guys. So the idea of fleas that Gideon puts out, and he puts, out, he puts it out twice, eh? first let it be dry, let it be wet, is actually used as a model for confirmation when it actually was quite sucky. It was him saying, um, I know you're God, I know you've given me a promise, I know you consumed the sacrifice that was on the rock, I know all that, but please, can I have a sign? And now that you've given me a sign, please don't get angry, but can I have another sign? And so even though it's used as a model of uh, seeking confirmation, it's actually not what God was trying to uh, teach through that. And then you see in chapter 7, verse 10, God knows where Gideon is at. He's, at the battle is imminent. It's going to happen now. And look at the words in uh, 7, 10 to 15. It says, 
um, um, God says to Gideon, hey Gideon, um, I know the battle is imminent. If you are afraid, that's God's way of saying, I know you're afraid. <laughs> he says, if you're afraid, take your servant Pura and go down to the camp of the enemy. And when you go down to the camp of the enemy, you'll hear people discussing a dream and that will give you courage. But the beautiful thing is, between 6.37 and 7.10, Gideon has started changing. In lesser circumstances, he wanted a sign. Now that the battle is imminent, and look what God has done to him. He's taken a guy who had 32,000 people and reduced it to 300. And then he shows him the enemy armies, and it says they were like locusts, meaning they couldn't be counted. And then in the midst of that, if I were Gideon and I could keep up my old habit, it would be like, put a rainbow in the sky if you want me to battle this one. And instead, Gideon is saying nothing. And that is when it is brilliant, when you and I can get to a place where God sends confirming signs because he wants to calm your soul. It's like a parent that wants to wean the child. Ah, oh, that is brilliant, where he knows the condition of your soul. And he says, let me send you a sign because I know you're scared. Guys, if you want to be someone who functions well in the kingdom, fearlessness is not the first prerequisite. Obedience is the first prerequisite. Obey first. Don't wait for fear. Don't wait for faith to kick in. Obey first. Once you obey, I assure you, God begins to give you the faith required to destroy fear. For any kingdom person, obedience is the first requisite, not fearlessness. So, to kind of answer both Jill and Anna's quest Anne's question, um, when it comes to confirmation, Gideon had this habit. It's an, always remember, guys, unresolved old habits will always come up when momentum gathers and events begin to unfold. Please hear me. Unresolved old habits always emerge. The emphasis there is on unresolved. All of us have old habits. Unresolved old habits re-emerge at the height of momentum and events unfolding. That's when old habits re-emerge. And they always throw a spanner in the works. Ask someone you trust, what are the old habits that keep coming up every time I'm doing well? And they'll tell you gently or strongly. Take it and try to resolve it because it will come up again and again. Gideon begins to hesitate. Just when things are beginning to go, he begins to hesitate again. But God obliges. He doesn't... <laughs> Here's the thing. It goes back to what I said in the beginning. God had decided before Gideon was born that you, my boy will be a mighty warrior and you will deliver Israel from the Midianites. And he'll relent and show him signs and he'll show him this and that. But the one thing he isn't backing off from is you will be a mighty warrior. The difference then is God could come to you, to me, and say this is what I want you to do and you can choose not to respond. All that means is you have less time to do what he wants. 
If you decide you'll be a mighty warrior at 70 and you're going to die at 72, you've got two, two years to do it. If you do it at 35, you've got 37 years to do it. But he doesn't decide, he doesn't go saying, eh, not working out. This is what he wanted from the beginning. Sometimes he gets what he wants. Sometimes we are so stubborn that he doesn't get what he wants. But he doesn't back off. God obliges. He doesn't relent from turning Gideon into a mighty warrior. Later, it's beautifully, the same Gideon who hesitates, who always is looking for confirming signs. Read Hebrews 11.32 and here's what Paul is saying. I don't have enough time to tell you about others like Gideon, like Barak, like Samson. Guys, giants of faith. In the roll call of faith, guess who's mentioned? You know David isn't mentioned? Like David's exploits are not mentioned? Or you would think David and Goliath would be mentioned, but David just gets a passing remark with Gideon and Barak. When God gives a sign, it's so much better. I remember um, this was in 2018, March 1st. Um, I was supposed to go uh, to Bahrain on March 14th, and uh, on March 1st, the Lord wakes me up and says, I want you to go to um, the UK. And I said, great, I'll stop by on my way to Bahrain. And God says, nope, I want you to go to UK now. And so um, I said, but that's a waste of money. I can do it later. Uh, he says, nope, you have to go now. I said, okay, so when? Um, and um, uh, God said, within the week, go. And so I said, yes. After I said, yes, I'm sitting in Surrey. Uh, having samosas at a Punjabi restaurant there. I'm sitting in Surrey and eating, and still I'm willing to obey and go to the UK, pay more, don't even know why I'm going for UK, don't have any meetings there. And this car pulls up right next to my car, and uh, it has the strangest number plate, UK 06. In my mind it was, duh, book your tickets on the 6th and go. And that's exactly what I did. And I'm thinking to myself, sometimes if you obey, he will send the sign you need instead of asking for a sign. Because when you ask for a sign, every number plate becomes a sign. Have you noticed that? There'll be a car going by and it'll say, uh, approved. And then another one going, saying, poisonous. <laughs> now what do you do? <laughs> so when you look for signs, the danger is um, the soul craves it. And when the soul craves it, sometimes um, you may get what is from God, but it turns to sawdust in your mouth. And um, I remember after this, I went to UK, and um, it was so cool. I spent three and a half days there. Didn't know what to do. First day was walk along the streets of UK, uh, London, walking along the streets of London. Someone calls me and says, next time you're in London, please give me a call. I said, I'm in London, and I meet him, and his life is affected. The next day, there was a meeting. Uh, nobody turned up. The pre uh, teacher, preacher didn't turn up, so they asked me to preach. I went and preached. The third day, it was uh, nothing, so I kept sleeping. And then um, in the afternoon, God said, go to Mor Ma this church called Mount Moriah in uh, Lugor in Wales, where the Welsh revival started, and write a letter and leave it for a guy. When they left a note for the guy, and uh, don't know what it did to his life. And the fourth day, it was on your way back to Heathrow, stop at this church and uh, uh, preach there. So I stopped at the church and I had one word written for a girl called Kiara. 
that I was supposed to give Kiara, but there are so many Kiaras in the UK. And so um, I go into the church, and uh, the worship leader's name is Kiara. And I had written the word before I went, and it was such a beautiful word. She's like weeping, because, and my question at the end of this, uh, at the end of it, and I know some of you have heard this before, is aren't there enough Christians in the UK that God can use to accomplish all this? Why in the world does he have to send someone from Vancouver to UK, pay that expense, send you to do stuff, when there are people there in UK that can do this? Why? Because he is not this economical God. This isn't a kingdom run on, this is our budget for this year, we better accomplish everything heaven wants in this budget. No, he's a God who wants to take his children on adventures. It's the adventure of it. When, when, when Kiara received the word, there was adventure in it. This is a stranger who's come from uh, 3,000, 4,000 miles away to give me a word and the word is accurate. A man calling you and saying, if, when you're in London next, can you please give me a call? And I'm walking three streets away from him. You know what that does to people? God likes taking his children on adventures, both you and the one who's receiving. Take your rightful place. Fight. Because everything is going to fight against you guys. I mean, think of this. Do you realize how hard it is to take your rightful place? Do you, do you know how much we struggle? It is so hard. Everything in life screams at you saying, you're not the guy, you're not the guy, you're not the guy. But before the foundations of the earth, someone said, you're the guy. And he refuses to back off from it. It just so happens that he's God. Guess who wins? You're the guy. I'm the guy in certain things, guys. I want to see it. Doesn't matter what happens, what people say, what obstacles come, whether I have money, don't have money, whether people like it, don't like it. I'm the guy in certain things that I have to press forward. And the same applies to you. And so every morning, get up. Wear your work clothes again. Put on those blooming army boots. And get to work. Please, guys. We've got to do this. Take your rightful place. It's only January. Molt that old skin. Molt that old skin. Get rid of it. It is not conducive to the rightful place. Molt it, please. Yeah? Alrighty. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, once he says something, uh, so let me repeat Jill's question. So let's say God says something to you. And uh, how do you engage him? Let's say he comes to you and says, mighty warrior, how do you engage him with it? Uh, why does that clock say minus 1357? Is it that I've gone over time? And since when have we started doing this? <laughs> Alrighty. Okay. I'll have to start preaching like this now. Yeah. 
Uh, so how do you answer that question? Guys, once God says something, um, expect him to say it again because he says in Psalm 60, once God has spoken, twice have I heard it. So God does have a tendency to come and say something and elaborate on it. And as he begins to elaborate on it, don't be in a hurry to come to a conclusion because God builds things line by line, precept by precept, brick by brick, but he builds it slowly. And as he builds it, things begin to develop. A stronghold develops. Only this is a divine stronghold. It begins to develop. Simple example. Today, um, I've been reading about uh, certain things about the Lion of Judah and stuff like that. And uh, without going into details of what I sense God saying to me, um, I've been asking, uh, I've been waiting on God for that. And then at some point, and this might sound like such an odd, silly example, but silly examples are only in the sight of somebody else. When that example happens to you, it's precious. And so uh, Yaya comes running up and she says, uh, I've got a drawing. I can't give it to you. It's not for you, but I want to show you the drawing. I said, sure. And she shows me the drawing and you can't see it. But it's this uh, face of literally Aslan-like lion with a smile on his face. And I, take, I ask her, can I take a photograph of it? Now, I'm not going to go and examine this and the lines and stuff like that. I just took a photograph because given what I'm reading, this, for a little child to come and show me this, she may not think it's much, you may not think it's much, but for me, this is a simple hint from God saying, hey, keep going down this line, there's more to discover. So I take a photograph of it. So that's how you begin to engage it. And once you reach a certain place in your engagement, he'll then bring in another twist to it. And you keep exploring it. It's an adventure for him, guys. This is not a teacher-student. It's a father-son or father-daughter. He wants to grow us into something that he is. Always remember, he's growing us into something that he is. He's not growing us into doing something. He's growing us into something that he is. Mighty warrior. It's something that he is. He's growing us into something that he is. That takes time. And so, go ahead, Jill, do you have a follow-up? Uh, Psalm 60, verse 11. And if it's not there, then look at the Psalms, two Psalms before that and two Psalms after that. <laughs> is it Psalm 60, verse 11? Okay, Anna, quickly ask your question. You know, you start uh, uh, doing this when you want to ask a question, but go ahead. Yeah. Don't even lift your hands from now. Just start doing this. I'll see it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, so do we look for divine visitation? Because most of them had it. It must have been easier for them. So we think. And this is because we live human lives in the kingdom. And uh, what we don't realize is the divine one now lives in me. And so it is much easier for me to hear, touch, feel, taste, smell than for them. Uh, 
where visitation would happen once in a while, and it would happen to a few, and they would be so scared that they would think they would die. Gideon's first words, when he finds out that this ain't an angel, this is the um, angel of God, his immediate reaction is, oh my God, I'm as good as dead. And so it was few and far between that it would happen. Now we have the divine one living fully in us. It's just because I don't live like that, that I, I do not have a vibrant living relationship with him. But some of the people who live like that, their lives are both transformed and transforming. And to live like that would be so brilliant, eh? Let's pray. Okay, it's Psalm 62, verse 11. I was right. It was two chapters this way or two that way. Mike, did you see the nod on her face when she said that? <laughs> yes, I'm sure you do. Alrighty, let's pray. Father, there's not a single person in this building that you're not personally inviting into this discovery. It's not so that I become great or they become great or we become great. It's not so that we become destiny walkers, nothing like that. It's, hey, before I made you, this was my plan for you. You're the man, you're the woman, you're the guy. I have half a mind to title this teaching, You're the Guy. And you are not going to back off. And I am grateful. People in this room right now, we want to say to you, we are grateful that you will not back off. Pastors may back off. Mentors may back off. Spiritual fathers may back off. Prophets may back off. Apostles may back off. Teachers may back off. But there is one who will not back off. And I am grateful, Jesus, because if it were not for that, we would have given up long ago. But you keep coming back, you keep coming back, you keep coming back. Because you know, you made me, you made each person here. You know, you, you, you styled us a certain way, formed us a certain way, put certain gifts, certain abilities, appointed us to certain places at certain times, sent us onto the earth at a certain year. Everything so precisely orchestrated so that we could be that guy. Jesus, by the Spirit of God, who I know is here. Spirit of God, I know you're here. Begin to work in our, in our hearts, in our spirits, something so deep that there'll be a desire. That I want to, I want to. That's part of the reason we've been spending time getting up in the morning, spending time with your word, listening to you. That's part of the reason we've been doing this. Please, Jesus, for your own namesake, for the benefit of the earth, You are the Lord God mighty, outshining all the stars in glory. Your love is like a tea ocean. Not to us, but to your name, we lift up all 
all praise, not to us, but to your name. We lift up all praise. We lift you up. We lift you up. We lift you up with our praises. You are lifted up. You are lifted up. You are lifted up on our praises. Last time, not to us. Not to us, but to your name. We give up all praise. Not to us, but to your name. We lift up all praise. For your name's sake, Jesus, do it in our midst. Amen. Guys, uh, there'll be people praying here. If you need prayer, feel free to come up and uh, receive prayer. Otherwise, tomorrow is quest, day after is. Tomorrow is, tomorrow is dawn, day after is May. It'll get me a little while to get used to this name. Tomorrow is dawn, day after is May. And uh, so if the Wally guys could come and just meet me before you leave, uh, I'll just say a quick hello to you. And uh, that's it. See you guys when we see you next. Not.